Hello and welcome. This is the podcast incarnation of News and Views, a show that airs every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday on WTUL New Orleans. We're currently uh, gearing our content towards helping people access and contribute to community resources in response to the unfolding COVID-19 pandemic. We would love to hear from you if you would like to talk on our show or connect us with any resources that we can talk about. That would be excellent. Please email us at wtulnews at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook. I hope that you enjoy the show and find it useful. Any feedback is most welcome. All right, we're joined over the airways by um, Shade Dumas and Bruce Riley. Shade Dumas is the executive director of Orleans Parish Prison Reform Coalition, a diverse, this is from their website, grassroots coalition of individuals and organizations from across New Orleans who have come together to shrink the size of the jail and improve the conditions of confinement for those held in detention in Orleans Parish. Founded in 2004, OPPRC members include community activists, lawyers, service providers, organizers, formerly incarcerated people, and their family members. Bruce Riley is deputy director of both Voice of the Experience and Voters Organized to Educate. Voice of the Experience is a grassroots organization founded and run by formerly incarcerated people, uh, the family and allies. Uh, they're dedicated to restoring full human and civil rights of the most impacted by those most impacted by the criminal injustice system. Together, they have the experiences, expertise, and power to improve public safety in Louisiana and uh, sorry, Louisiana and beyond without relying on mass incarceration. So those are some folks, some organizations. Um, Shade and Bruce, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having us. So thanks for having us. So to start out, I um, you know I sort of thought of this as a question for you, Bruce, but it's really for both of you, um, thinking about um, what's going on in Louisiana and in Orleans Parish and why COVID-19 is an urgent concern for people who are incarcerated around the state. As everybody is, is you know, reasonably aware that when you get a whole bunch of people in close quarters, it makes, you know, something like a, a you know, an influenza pandemic uh, even more of a crisis. And so there's nothing that that's more um, you know, eligible for, for incredible super crisis than jails and prisons. I mean, it's the most close quarters scenario, uh, you know, in our whole society. We have a couple million people who are locked up in those scenarios across the country. And, and we've got about, close to, you count the people that are in ICE detention, you know, we've got about 50,000 people in Louisiana uh, that are in our gulag system up and down the state. And right here in in the city in New Orleans, uh, you've know, got about a thousand people, and actually it's just dipped down a little bit below for the first time uh, in forever. So I think that the responsibility is on the people who have control over people's bodies uh, to take a look and think what is the best thing for humanity, for, the, for our community, our society, our families. Um, because the other thing is, Let's just say you're the most evil, mean, cynical person, uh, and you're saying, I'm not going to let anyone out, and I don't care if they all die. Well, the reality is if that disease festers on the inside, it's really going to help further the spread on the outside. So it's in nobody's interest, no matter how, you know, how much you might hate someone who's you know, incarcerated in jail for owing money, incarcerated in jail for, for beating someone up or for doing drugs or, or stealing things, um, or even some of the most worst things. Uh, you know, it's in everybody's interest right now to try to to, to tamper down this this flu crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think when we look at jails and prisons, we we know that there's no way to practice social distancing in 
a place that was created to cage people. Um, and if we want to flatten the curve, like we're saying all around um, the city and all around the country, then we actually have to release people from jail. And the big thing is to actually see people in jails and prisons as community members, because most of the people inside, especially jail, because they're pretrial, they're going to come back out and they're going to come back out to the community. So it's important to actually care for the people on both sides of the walls and see that everyone is equal in this respect. And if we want to really flatten the curve, then we need to reduce the number of people incarcerated in our local jail. Well, I just wanted to give you know people a little bit of a you know maybe a visual of what it's like to be incarcerated and and dealing with this. Um, you know, I just talked to a, a very close friend uh, this morning who is in Connecticut, and I was like, you know, what's the what's the status of the situation? And so, you know, there's a lot of guys that that are not um, taking it seriously. They're playing basketball. They're they're you know sitting down at the card table. They're not social distancing. They're also not getting a lot of great information. Um, you know, the, the, what you have access to is limited. Um, but these are people that are, you know, if it's in there, they're spreading it around, you know, moment by moment, and he's doing his best to take it seriously. Uh, but also they, they get fed in this particular place, they get fed with these plastic trays with plastic lids on them, uh, that are, you know, the food is assembled by, by, uh, fellow prisoners, you know, under the direction of guards. And so all the, you know, as, as we know now, most of us know that the COVID-19 will sit very nice and tidily on a, a plastic tray, for instance, and you have to lift it to open it. And none of these people even have access to gloves. Uh, they don't have access to, to hand sanitizer. Uh, they don't have access to face masks or any of the things that everyone is running around trying to get here on the outside. You're just, you know, on your own, maybe washing your hands as much as you can, um, maybe using, you know, pieces of plastic bag to touch things or something as like a glove. Uh, but you don't, you're just, your possessions are very limited in your ability to, to steer clear of things of just like getting food. Um, you know, so they have wrecks still, uh, they have yards they, where he's at, they gave everyone two free phone calls a month, uh, which go quickly. And conversely here uh, in Louisiana, we're hearing about some Paris jails where, you know, people are trying to call their loved ones uh, and they're getting gouged at $9 a minute uh, to make a phone call. So they're getting a bill for $40 for a single phone call. And that kind of disaster capitalism, uh, you know, they're totally preying upon uh, families that have no other choice than to, to use the phone service that is provided. Absolutely. And it, and it seems like that's another tremendous risk is as it's harder for people uh, you know, loved ones on the outside to see what's going on <laughs> inside, then, then these things can continue without sort of being, having any mechanism to, to keep it from happening. Yeah. And, and another point too, that people should keep in mind, I think, um, you know, is very important is the medical care at its best in jails and prisons has always been terrible. It's always been underfunded, underattended, uh, understaffed, and you've had to wait you know, weeks or months to be seen. Um, you know, if you don't have a, a protruding bone or blood coming out, uh, you know, the reality is you, you just don't get checked up on. And you know, I, I've heard of, you know, someone who's saying like, I can't even breathe correctly and can't get checked up on, you know, while incarcerated. The average infirmary at a, at a jail or prison has, you know, two, three, maybe 10 beds for a, a prison to hold a few thousand people. 
and so, you know, we're worried about out here, of course, about hospital beds and, and practitioners. Uh, but on the inside, you know, once you have a few hundred people that have COVID-19 and you have like three beds, no ventilators, and nothing else, I mean, they're going to be last in line to get any kind of treatment. So it's going to spread like wildfire. And you've got people who have lots of um, ailments. You know, the, 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 the prison population is older, um, unfortunately. You know, there's, there's a lot of people who have, uh, you know, HIV or, or hepatitis. Um, and so there's the, whatever the death rate is out here, I would imagine it would be 10 times uh, for incarcerated people. Yes, and to bring that to New Orleans, I think it's really concerning because the Orleans Parish Prison is under a consent decree, and one of the items under on the consent decree is lack of adequate medical care. And to this day, Sheriff Gusman has not shared in detail what, it, what he's doing to keep our community members safe inside of the Arlings Parish Prison. So as a community, we don't know if people are being tested for COVID-19. We don't know what type of new protocol are being called into place to keep people separated as much as possible, which we know is not really possible inside of a jail. Um, so this is something to really be concerned about. Yeah, we are hearing, um, you know, there, are, there have been some people beginning released uh, you know, different judges have taken different approaches. Uh, they're not hearing any any new cases. Uh, so people who you know, who might have wanted a trial or or some other kind of uh, motion to possibly get out, those things are all frozen. Um, the sheriff is not transporting people to uh, to the courthouse. They're doing uh, first appearances, like when which is when people first get arrested and you, and you set bail. They're doing that by video. Um, so clearly there are some people who are, are helping the cause and, and moving things along. Uh, you know, the OPD, the public defenders, you know, they've been, they've been fighting tooth and nails, trying to get people out. Uh, there's been several bail funds uh, to post bail, and which is kind of sad that, you know, in a time of crisis, people have to spend their energies raising funds from, uh, you know, from, from committed individuals that care about the humanity of people in jails to get bail for someone who is bail eligible for let's just say $200, $500, $5,000. Rather than a judge saying, you know what, $5,000, $0, let's let this person out, right? Promise to appear. So rather than making that quick decision, we're, you know, the community is doing fundraising efforts to get people out. Uh, and and that, that's you know, just tragedy upon tragedy. But the, the system is kind of emptying out a little bit um, by fewer people going in and more people getting out. But it's still because we were one of the most incarcerated. I mean, we are the most incarcerated cities in the world. Um, you know, it, it, to bring it down to some sort of manageable level of people is going to take a lot of work. Um, and, and sort of on that note, and, and I want to repeat that and just say, because I just has read this thing the other day where I was surprised to see, oh, the numbers in OPD are, uh, or OPP, sorry, are going, are decreasing, but it was almost exclusively because of these funds where community members are paying to, to bail people out versus, versus a, you know, actual like reduce in arrests or official shift in um, arrest protocol. But I'm curious to hear um, from Shade about the, the parish's on bank order and the advocacy that OPPRC is doing around that as a, as a way to try um, to, to relieve a large number of people at one time from this risk. Yes, absolutely. So 
in place right now, New Orleans has an unbond garter that was signed in 2012 to release certain classes of people detained in a jail when there's a natural disaster, such as a category three hurricane. And it makes sense that this would also cover a pandemic, but it doesn't. On yesterday, we sent a letter to the judges, to our city council members and Louisiana legislators requesting the release of people who are being held pre-trial, um, those at risk for COVID-19, so those who are older are with compromised immune systems, along with those who are being held for low-level or nonviolent offenses. So we called for the release of those individuals, and over 40 organizations joined us with that letter sent to the judges. And this is really important. As we know, Louisiana leads the nation um, in jailing people before trial. And as a native New Orleanian, I can't forget what happened during Hurricane Katrina. I can't forget how people were stranded in the jail um, and basically lost any type of connection to the criminal justice system or to become free due to a catastrophe. So we need people released before it gets to that point in the city of New Orleans. And something that, that feels like, I mean, it feels like so much the, the intent of the Ambank order is framing, is in some sense taking an, a notion of environmental justice into account. And it's so much is a very similar thing where when we talk about Katrina as a man-made disaster, we're seeing, we're seeing exposure to environmental harm in the exact same way that's being created by the same systems. Absolutely. And the judges are in a position right now to release so many people from the jail. So we're calling on the judges to use their authority to care for our community members and to care for some of the most vulnerable people in our city who are who happen to be in our jail. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that people can't be nimble enough to say there's a lesson that, you know, plenty of lessons that have been learned from Katrina. And, you know, what what might I regret? a year from now or five years from now from COVID-19 and think, you know, whether it be your own personal household, your family, your school, your neighborhood, your jail, and say, what, you know, what might I regret? You know, what can I change um, right now to make sure I don't regret? And, you know, folks are basically kind of, you know, maybe digging their own, their own criticism, uh, you know, and some people are elected officials. And this is going to come back to haunt them, you know, the inaction or the action, you know, that, that they take. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of eyes watching. There's a lot of activists uh, that are out here. And there's a lot of, a lot of voters and citizens that are, that are taking note. And, um, you know, the sad thing about right now is, I mean, what is the alternative to, let's say, trying to be, you know, phone call campaigns, letter writing, emails, et cetera. Uh, all these meetings, all these webinars, you know, the mayor and others are convening lots of people all the time. And, you know, what's the alternative? Gathering in a huge bunch of folks outside the prison and violating that sort of principle uh, to try to draw attention to the problem. Uh, and, you know, nobody wants to do that. That just would make matters worse yet again. So, you know, really, they need to start responding to these very reasonable calls for things that are entirely doable. Um, it's just a shame. I mean, the, the, the district attorney's approach is just kind of like, seems to wrap him up in a nutshell uh, that to almost make it sound as though 
uh, you know, people are have created the COVID-19 as an excuse to get out of jail. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of pathetic, really. Absolutely. And we're not asking for something that's impossible or too far to reach. We see in Los Angeles and across Ohio that jails are releasing people early and arresting fewer people over the fears of this virus spreading. And at this point, these measures, they protect police officers, deputy sheriffs, healthcare workers, people inside the jail, and also, as Bruce said earlier, people on the outside of the jail. So we, we will all have a price to pay if we don't act swiftly with this. Where I laughed, what laugh was uh, incarcerated, you know, I just saw a report last night that three people tested positive and, you know, and, and they're all, everyone's on lockdown. But it made me wonder, you know, who are the guards that were working and were or were not they, um, you know, on overtime because they guards will even shift between facilities at times. So it'd be very easy for a guard who is in, let's say, medium security to work a shift in maximum security and then spread it in there. And then a guard might be out on sick leave and no one's really paying attention. You know, there's not like this, uh, you know, this, this hardcore kind of government immunologist CDC approach. It's just like, oh, we got a few people infected and, and then they're not testing. Uh, the last people to get tested are going to be people that are incarcerated. And yet it's the, you know, the hotbed of, of the greatest crisis we could face. And so people are, you know, at the whims of, of, of their jailers. Uh, and it's really, it, it just, it, it burns me up inside. I mean, for me to, to, to sort of stay calm and carry on uh, when I know people who are, are going to get infected with, with no hope, there's nowhere to flee. You know, there, there's no chance for them. Um, and it just is what it is. And it feels like, you know, so much of the rationale of, of what's, what's happening generally in society today is this idea of a break in business and usual and a shift to protect the most vulnerable people in our population. And the idea that people who are currently incarcerated or stuck in jail, like are not part of that is, is absurd. I wonder, um, just starting starting to, to 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 move towards thinking about about action and how people can get involved. What what are some other steps or advocacy work that your organizations are doing? I know Bruce is also this issue of the legislative session being sort of stopped and that shifting what options are immediately available. But but what what are y'all advocating for in addition to the on bank order? As I guess is my question. To the best of everyone's ability, this is the time to be reaching out to the mayor. Um, this is the time to reach out to our city council members, especially those on a criminal dis, um, criminal justice committee. This is the time to email the judges. Um, a lot of people are out of the office because of the virus, but people are checking emails. Um, so we need to let them know that we care about all community members, including those in the jail, and that they should be released. Yeah, I mean, definitely people should be reaching out to all of their elected officials. You know, that would go to your city council person, your state rep. You know, they need to hear from from as many people as possible, you know, the urgency. Uh, and so that they become, you know, fired up for the same fight. And, you know, that goes all the way to Cedric Richmond, um, you know, for people that are, uh, you know, who are thinking from a, a federal level. You know, we have, a, we have our senators, Cassidy and Kennedy. Uh, you know, the governor himself, and they need to take some executive action. They need to take some, you know, as Sade mentioned, the, you know, the, the judge who oversees the consent decree, uh, the federal judge. I mean, there's so many people who have some authority 
or have the persuasive powers uh, to make some things happen. And it's important for people just to, to, to connect and get through that, you know, these are our, this is our community. It's not planet, you know, uh, Mars. They're not, you know, some aliens or whatever. These are our family members, our neighbors. And whether, um, you know, whether we see them as coming back to us or not, or whether they never come back, it's the humane thing to do. Uh, and we don't want to, to, to make the problem worse. And I think maybe what's not quite sunk in yet is this death rate situation, uh, that it is a more serious flu than you're used to. And I think there's some folks just figure like, oh, you'll be sick for a while. It'll be uncomfortable. Okay, stay tuned. But, you know, we can revisit that conversation and, and people can be on the record about, you know, what it means for two out of 100 people to, to get sick and to die. Um, and, and what short of dying looks like. Uh, and I think people need to take this thing seriously as the only way that we're gonna, as they say, flatten the curve, but save lives. Uh, and, and we've lost enough lives over things um, around the, these parts, like Cancer Alley and, and all the toxicity. Katrina, obviously. I mean, there's so many preventable deaths that happen in Southern Louisiana. Uh, that for us to to just make this matter worse by not paying attention, it, it'd be shame on us. Well said. Well, I, I thank you both so much. Uh, Shout out to my son, Bruce Riley. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks to you. Thank you for having us. Joisha Dutta is a tri-coastal, nearly trilingual, Bengali-American, multi-interdisciplinary artist, activist, and strategist. She is a co-founding core member, space activator, and people convener for Another Gulf is Possible Collaborative, galvanizing the voices and experiences of brown, red, indigenous, Latinx, and Desi women from across the Gulf South to the global South, working towards a just transition for our people uh, and the planet. Uh, she is a co-founder emeritus of 826 New Orleans Board of Directors. Joisha is an avid traveler, home chef, live music lover, and adores being near or in any body of water. She was born in Mobile, raised in New York, aged in Oakland, and is deeply grateful to call New Orleans home, though speaking with us from around Denver. Uh, Joisha, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Um, <clears throat> I'm doing pretty well. I'm yeah, here in Denver, not at home in New Orleans, uh, caretaking for my elderly parents but you know we're hanging in we're used mm -hmm. to being at home so we're doing we're doing pretty well considering so I wanted to speak to you today uh, about this resource that you put together the COVID-19 community care resources uh, in the another Gulf is possible website but I'm thinking first maybe just to talk a little bit about another Gulf is possible beyond what I said in the introduction would be great sure um, we are a collaborative of 10 folks across the Gulf South, so our furthest South members in Brownsville, Texas, and we kind of go up the coast all the way to Pensacola, Florida. Um, the greatest uh, number of us are in New Orleans, so I think we're most active in New Orleans. It's where we have our um, kind of home office and space at Catapult on St. Ferdinand. Um, and we are a collaborative of folks who are all doing different kinds of work towards a just transition and a just transition, the concept of that is that we live right now um, in a deeply extractive society and 
in order for humanity to survive um, kind of climate apocalypse, which we are honestly right now experiencing. Um, I did not expect it to come as disease. We've talked about it, but I thought it would be other things. But um, for us to survive that, we need to move to a regenerative, cooperative, sustainable um, way of being in all the different ways. And so what you'll see across kind of the 10 of us and we're a brown women-led collaborative, we do have two male identified members at this moment. Um, we just welcomed them a few months ago. Um, but all of us are doing different types of work in trying to build that regenerative, sustainable, supportive, cooperative um, new world. And so some of us work together really closely. Some of us, you know, know each other from afar. You know, it's, it's just all across the board, different kinds of work centering art, culture, healing and uh, direct action. And something that that makes me think about even just like listening to you describe the the um, collaborative in that way makes me sort of uh, juxtapose it or or think of it against, you know, the kind of like way that, you know, um, a lot of messaging has been coming out in this time uh, from, you know, even thinking about here in New Orleans, the, the mayor's office sort of um, really stressing that people need to be alone and sort of shaming people for all these different things. And like in this moment where we are in sort of the middle of an emergent health crisis and we do have to figure out ways to create distance from each other, but, um, but not a lot of resources for thinking about really how to do that or what that looks like or what, you know, getting through this in a way that makes sense is going to be like. And so uh, when I saw your COVID-19 community care resources, it was interesting because it was sort of talking about the same things and the same strategies, but centering, you know, exactly what you're talking about, sustaining ourselves and communities. And, uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the idea for this page came together and, 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 um, and what putting it together has been like for you. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> putting this page together comes from a history of um, myself and others in the collaborative doing immediate response and recovery um, support work during other climate disasters, um, mm -hmm. including, you know, folks in the collaborative have worked, definitely done a lot of work post-Katrina. Um, personally, I put together an emergency response kind of page, directing resources um, in both directions, like folks who wanted to, who needed help and folks who had you know, provision of offerings of help during Hurricane Harvey. And we um, kind of came up with more and more uh, support around this idea that during moments of disaster, we don't want to have um, the, the common recovery response, which in New Orleans we see really deeply after Hurricane Katrina, there was an extraction that mm -hmm. happened from the communities and um, we see who suffers the most. And so the community care page for COVID-19 comes out of that understanding that the government is going to be slow to respond, mm -hmm. not going to respond to the folks we care about in terms mm -hmm. of our social justice frame. And so we need to take care of each other. And that's really the underlying piece around mutual aid is that we are interdependent beings that in this moment, especially times like this, we're seeing it happen um, really beautifully, you know, and organically. And there's a, those of us who have been kind of trying to push this and this is the moment for those of us who have have been really holding that work to support that proliferation and I think that's um, the hope behind this community care page is to show how many it's been amazing to see 
kind of the exponential growth of community care as much as the virus has been growing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to ask you about that, too, and, and your perception. I think that for me, and I certainly know what shows up in my uh, Facebook feed and on the particular kinds of uh, digital calls that I've been on, but certainly the, the idea and even the naming of this, this idea of mutual aid seems like in some ways it's, it's gained a lot more traction than I have ever seen before. I wonder if that's your perspective and if you see people sort of seizing on that moment outside of even what y'all are working on. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's ever in at least modern history been a moment where everyone collectively is suffering from the same disaster. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times there's a tornado, there's an earthquake, there's a fire, there's a hurricane, there's a tsunami, um, and one community in the world is impacted, and we all go to support that disaster. I think in this moment, this is an unprecedented situation um, where everyone's suffering. Literally, we all have to help each other because there is nobody who isn't impacted or at risk in the entire world, you know, and definitely in the United States at this moment. And so I feel like it makes sense that we are going to see that. And my hope is that this doesn't become a flash in the pan moment. I don't think it is just Mm -hmm. the science of it. It's like we're in it. We're in it for a while and we're going to have to fundamentally shift our ways of being. And that's kind of what has been necessary. Those of us who do climate work have been very aware that unless, really, unless something like this happened, unless the whole world woke up simultaneously and shifted our ways, the planet wasn't going to make it. And so, you know, not to be too metaphysical, but I am a little woo-woo person. I do think this is Gaia, Mother Earth, Pachamamas, whatever you want to call this being that we all share. It's her getting sick and us all having to like, get together so we can make it through. And I think that's the kind of undergirding idea of mutual aid and um, community care. And I see it happening in beautiful ways in New Orleans. I'm, I'm not home right now, but I see it. I was on a social distancing dance party that mm-hmm. Aaron Hannah did yesterday. You know, like just, I see I'm participating when I can since some things are virtual, but mm-hmm. seeing in this moment, people step up for each other and, you know, shout out and love to folks at home because I see New Orleans being this real hotspot of the virus, but I also see it being a really beautiful place where since people, we've experienced it time and time again in our city that um, people have to show up for each other this way. So I feel like New Orleans mm. is doing that right now too. Now I want to talk about, um, so on the, the community care resources and, and, and go back to something you were saying a second ago about, you know, this being a moment of this crisis that's affecting everybody and, and also is affecting people in different ways based on their you know, underlying, obviously, experiences and sets of needs. And I think the way that this website is put together really kind of speaks to, one, that there's a whole spectrum of things that we all need, whether it's uh, medicines and, and healing things that we can make for ourselves and our communities, but also um, you know, particular kinds of resources. And here I see resources for artists and cultural workers, resources for uh, folks who are experiencing domestic violence, which as we know is exacerbated in situations where people are confined to their homes and for folks who are undocumented. Um, so I, I guess, I don't know, I, I want to just make sure that that's stated over the airways because I think that this is put together in a super useful way. But maybe you could talk a little bit about how um, the 
categorizing or organizing of these resources, um, kind of what that process was like for you? <laughs> it's uh, an active process. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I think every day I've basically been doing a refresh on a daily basis. It's also getting to the point, like with that exponential growth. Yeah. That, um, it's really a curation at this point, um, mm-hmm. and like adding what seems the m- like most big, you know, biggest new thing that I've come across um, and then kind of reorganizing um, as new kind of things have been coming up today. I'm going to be working on a section that's going to be, I don't know what to call it, but it's going to basically be like entertainment, quarantine entertainment and wellness, you know, just all the different, different lists of wellness and entertainment things that, you know, not everybody's going to be at home, how we're going to be at home for 24 seven and still be with other people and take care of ourselves. So that, that section's coming today. Awesome. Um, so yeah, it's just been really emergent and iterative as, as folks have been stepping, um, stepping up for their communities. Um, I'm just trying to curate a space that people can go to as a guide for those things. Um, so, uh, so this is sp- this. So for folks who are trying to log on, it's at uh, another golf, which is one word.com. Uh, and here on my browser, it's slash COVID-19 community care. Uh, but I imagine if you just like typed in in your browser, another Gulf community care, it would come up. But it's, I mean, I've got to say, it's really a great resource. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, your yeah support and bringing us on to share because we definitely want folks to um, to take take a look at the page, you know, bookmark it, use it. And then send us resources if there are things you'd like to see up there at anothergulf.com. Excellent. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, that's all. Take care, everybody. Be well and, you know, take care of each other and yourselves. Uh, data from Another Gulf is possible. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Theo. Take care. That's all for our show today. If you would like to submit anything for future shows or hit us up with any feedback, you can email us at wtulnews at gmail.com. Again, that's wtulnews at gmail.com. And if you'd like to listen to us when we air on the radio, it's going to be Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 10 a.m. for new content. And of course, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 9 a.m. to hear Democracy Now! Thanks and be well.